0: This is episode 75 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 75 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the Center. In this episode, we chat with Amy Murphy, founder of Rehumanize International, a human rights organization dedicated to creating a culture of peace and life. We discuss her new book, Rehumanize, a vision to secure human rights for all, and explore the principles of the consistent life ethic. Let's sit down together for this fascinating conversation. Well, Amy Murphy, thank you so much for taking time to be with us on the podcast.
1: It is such a joy to be with you here today, Ken. Thank you. So,
0: tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where did you do your studies? Kind of those sorts of things.
1: Yeah. So, uh, I was born and raised in California. When I was thinking about going to college, I applied to like eleven schools or something absurd like that, and ended up going to my first choice, uh, Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and fell in love with Pittsburgh so much that by the end of my first semester at CMU, I was like, "Okay, well, I'm going to live in Pittsburgh now. Pittsburgh is my home." Okay. (laughs) Um, So I live in Pittsburgh now uh, with my husband and our two housemates and our dog, Domino, Um, and right now we're on this big cross-country book tour, actually all four and doggy one of us uh, together uh, in our SUV with our little pop-up camper driving all over the country to share the message of the
0: Consistent Life ethic. Just over 10 years ago, you founded the organization Rehumanize International and its predecessor, Life Matters Journal. So what does the word rehumanize mean to you? Oh,
1: yeah. We had so much fun when we were renaming the organization in 2017 because rehumanized was not yet a word in the dictionary. (laughs) So we got to sit down and brainstorm Really like what, what the definition of the word should be according to us. So the, the definition that we settled on was to restore to humans the sense of selfhood and individuality or to recognize and respect the inherent dignity due to human beings after they have been dehumanized. And the thing is like the word dehumanization and dehumanize has been part of our lexicon for a while now. Mm-hmm so it's it's funny and interesting to me that the word "rehumanize wasn't also, you know part and parcel of including that word in our dictionary, <laughs> which perhaps speaks to like yes, an understanding of the wrong, but not necessarily a vision of where to go to really restore that dignity, you know, to really enshrine a protection for Humanity, from conception to natural death, from womb to tomb, in our laws, in our society, um, in academia, etc. So we really saw it as an opportunity to set the tone for what rehumanized means. So I, I, you know, I hope that that definition remains a part of the wider conversation in our culture. Yeah.
0: Well, now, your book is entitled Rehumanize, A Vision to Secure Human Rights for All. So it includes a comprehensive introduction to the consistent life ethic, which you, you hinted at discovering what that was through encountering other groups that were promoting this and, and that were kind of carrying that banner before you. So help us unpack exactly what you mean by and what, what we mean by consistent life ethic.
1: Yes, the core of the consistent life ethic is the belief that each and every human being has inherent dignity, dignity and worth and value and rights simply because we are members of the human species. So, this is something that's intrinsic to us, not something that is conferred by the state, but something that is recognized by the state, by cultures in general. And what this translates into in terms of the consistent life ethic, is opposition to all forms of aggressive violence. Basically, understanding that each and every human being has the fundamental right to live free from aggressive violence. So this includes opposition to acts of violence like embryo destruction, abortion, war, torture, Uh, police brutality, the death penalty, uh, carceral torture, euthanasia, filicide, assisted suicide, abuse, enslavement, and homicide, and all other forms of aggressive violence against human beings. And it's interesting because if you listen to that list, I'm sure you'll see that opposition to each of these acts of violence spans and transcends the modern partisan political paradigm that we have in this country Um, and I think that exists in a lot of countries Uh, we don't have a major political party that stands for uh, human rights and human dignity in all stages and in all circumstances Uh, so the consistent life ethic movement is beautifully diverse I'd say not just Nonpartisan, but transpartisan, interpartisan—like it—it flouts, you know, the the system that exists right now. And we also tend to be a very religiously and uh, socioeconomically diverse coalition as well, because it really is a philosophy where we can have every human standing for the rights of and in solidarity with every human.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's where actually I remember meeting you. You came to the Vita Institute and you represented yourself a person of faith, but also representing an organization that was very, very big tent.
1: Totally. Um, You know, and our our new executive director, Herb Garrity um, has been involved with the organization since 2016, and, you know, is an atheist active in the movement. We have folks who have worked with us who have been Muslim, Buddhist, you know, agnostic, Protestant, Catholic, Quaker. Yeah, we just have such a diverse group of people, Um, you know, and I myself am a member of the LGBT community. We have several members of our organization and our, our broader coalition who are also part of the LGBT community. And, you know, we have people who range from, you know, far right and cap libertarians all the way to far left Marxist communists, you know, and everywhere in between. And I love that because what I think that diversity really says to our culture is that it doesn't matter where you come from, it doesn't matter what your religious beliefs are or your political background is, you are welcome here. And like you have a space in this movement. And in fact, that diversity also speaks to just like the the agreeableness. I don't even know that's a word. (laughs) Just the idea that the consistent life ethic is not only understandable, but agreeable to people of all sorts of different backgrounds. And I think it just gets back to this idea that it is a philosophy for all humanity. It's not just, you know, this right-wing conservative Catholic ideology. It really is a philosophy for all, even if it was popularized in, you know, uh, modern Catholic circles, that there are people who range from humanists, feminists, You know, non-aggression principle, or personalist, or you know, all sorts of religious backgrounds who can come together because we understand that the very first and foundational human right is the right to live free from violence. Uh,
0: You just used a a phrase that uh, is actually the title of your opening and foundational chapter of your book, which is "A Philosophy for All Humanity." That again is the is the introduction to consistent life ethic that also. You're very smart in your rhetorical approach because you anticipate a lot of the uh, objections that I'm sure you've heard countless times, uh, including one of them being the question of, well, I, I'm really passionate about this portion of defending life. I'm, I'm really passionate about uh, euthanasia or I'm really passionate about disability rights. It Does that mean that I can't <laughs> spend time focusing on just this part? Um, and I, I think you you really do a good job of addressing that.
1: You know, it's one of the arguments that we get a lot is, you know, number one, can I focus on single issue work? And number two, what do we do about the misuse of the consistent life ethic? Um and those are things that Cardinal Bernardine, as the early popularizer of this philosophy, you know, he answered <laughs> back then, you know, like in the 70s and 80s, and it holds true today, you know, that single issue work is How we get so much done, like we need people who are dedicated and passionate and spend the bulk of their time working to end single issues like euthanasia or abortion or the death penalty or, you know, working for disability rights. The important thing, number one, is not to spread yourselves too thin. (laughs) And number two, to carry the philosophy of the consistent life ethic in all that you do which basically means don't be out here undermining the work of single issue activists as long as they're consistently holding to consistent life ethic principles. You know, it, it, it's it's pretty fruitless to say, well, you're en- working to end the death penalty, but I think you should be working to end abortion. Because fundamentally, working to end any of these forms of violence speaks to the inherent dignity of the human person. And, you know, one of the, one of the claims that I think a lot of consistent life ethic adherents get is, you know, oh, well, you're, you're watering down whatever, you know, the message for whatever issue. And the thing that I hope is that we're not watering down any message but that we are pointing people to the central and most important truth for any of these issues of violence and that hopefully we can draw together a broader coalition of people to work to end you know whatever single issue of violence it is that you know any one given person is working to affect the second thing that I want to I want to mention here is the misuse of the consistent life ethic. I think that's a really common, you know, argument and point against our movement. And Cardinal Bernardine has uh, just a, a really spicy quote that I included in the first chapter of the book that basically says that um, you know voting for politicians who think that abortion is a basic right of an individual. Is a misuse of the consistent life ethic, and he says, and I deplore it. And I think that's just a a fascinating and snappy, pithy, right to the root of the question uh, response because he understood that people were, you know, attempting to use the consistent life ethic to vote for politicians who supported some form of violence, but also, you know, maybe might be more pro-immigrant or, you know, working on ending poverty or working on ending houselessness or stuff like that. And so basically what he was saying right then and there was voting for politicians who support violence as a basic right is contrary to the consistent life ethic and, you know, authentic adherence of this philosophy wouldn't be attempting to justify, um, you know, a vote in support of violence uh, in general, that we would be calling for a better alternative. I often say that when it comes to politics, I have a really low bar in terms of whether or not I will consider voting for someone. My low bar is so low, it is the ground. (laughs) My, My low bar is... I would consider voting for someone if they oppose aggressive violence against human beings and their policy and their beliefs, et cetera. Like, I won't vote for someone who supports violence. Like, that is my low bar. And if anyone, if any politician is tripping over that bar, if that bar is an obstacle to them, it is because they have dug themselves a hole. The basic right of every human to live free from violence should be our bare minimum. And I think it's, it's honestly only because we have been in this situation of, quote unquote, choosing the lesser of two evils over and over and over again. That has led us to this moment, this political moment where the evil just keeps getting more and more entrenched in the system. We just accept it as the status quo. And we need to stand up and demand better. We need to be unwilling to compromise our conscience and our values and throw humans under the bus for political expediency.
0: Makes it difficult to vote for anyone. Preach. Amen. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> totally. Uh, you know, and maybe I like I don't I don't know how that would end up panning out, but I think we need to demand better. And ultimately the thing that I understand and that I I hope others can also understand is that when it comes to voting, our vote will have such an infinitesimally small impact on the outcome of any given election. Um, you know, beyond maybe like a school board vote, but how we vote will 100 of the time impact our consciences. And to me, that like the battle for the soul of our nation or whatever is it, it's less of an actual political battle in the halls of Congress you know, our our state Congress or our national Congress. And it's more about the things we do day in and day out and more about our consciences as individuals and the things that we are willing to justify in order to achieve political power. So the, the thing I want to leave with your listeners today is just to remember that the things that you do day in and day out in your community are going to make more of a difference ultimately than most of the policies that could be passed by any Congress. That the way that you live in solidarity with the vulnerable, the way that you participate in mutual aid and you participate in community on a local level is going to have more of an impact than your one vote for in any given race.
0: Perhaps my favorite sentence in your book is also the biggest challenge and opportunity, I guess, too. You write, quote, even if we ended all aggressive violence, we would need to work to protect and bolster the dignity of our fellow humans, end quote. So big question here, and you you may have actually anticipated your answer in what you just said. How do we do that in this culture, this this pervasive American culture of expressive individualism, as uh, Professor Carter Sneed writes, versus the culture that, that acknowledges our interdependence on one another?
1: Totally. Uh, you know, and I've been thinking about this topic a lot, and I, I'm already imagining, you know, like version 1.5 or 2.0 of the book, where I include a reference to uh, Leah Labresco Sargent's pieces on interdependence and community. Because one of the things I include in uh, chapter 12, put these ideas into action, in a section titled Use Your Freedom for Community. I learned uh, in the past two years while, you know, reading and doing various research for the book, the word freedom comes from the Indo-European root word fria, spelled F-R-I-Y-A. And the word friend also comes from the same root word, Freya. And the word, the, this root word, Freya means beloved. And my own name, Amy, also means beloved. So when I found this out, I like did a little happy dance. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. But this idea of freedom that this root word, Freya, gets at is that freedom was really when free people were really like tied to one another in kinship, rights of belonging, and things like this. And that the, this, this root word freedom with the root word freya really indicates that what freedom was, was the ability to ensure that together we would all have the things that we needed to survive. We had food, shelter, community, love, like that that we had the things that we needed to live together in community that this word freedom was for community it was for this beloved community you know to to call back to Martin Luther King Jr. and you know so i i i guess i contradict the modern popular understanding of freedom as independence Perhaps, you know, this, yes, this expressive individualism, this radical individualism. And here I've also learned a lot from personalist philosophers who specifically, you know, like created this movement, this philosophical movement of personalism to challenge the movements of Marxist communism in Russia, but also the radical individualism of a lot of Western Europe. You know, they they saw that both of these movements were flouting some aspect of the human experience, that this radical individualism was seeing the individual and their right to do whatever they wanted at the expense of the community, but that this, you know, radical collectivism of communist Russia was seeing the good of the community at the expense of the dignity of the individual. And so this personalist philosophers have really talked about weaving together this understanding of the rights and dignity of the individual in the context of human community, which is, you know, like we're, we're a communal, we are a social species. We are meant to live in community. And I think that this challenge to us going forward is to build communities that acknowledge our interdependence on one another that don't see, for example, disability, you know, purely from this medical less than perspective, but as a social problem that we, you know, we need to work together to create inclusive spaces. So, you know, it, This is, I think, the the challenge going forward And, and community is going to be not only the answer to violence, but also I think the answer to so much dehumanization and prejudice that exists in our culture today. You know, I think community and encounter are going to be the answers to ableism, ageism, homophobia and transphobia, classism, sexism and racism. These are things that like impact dehumanization and violence, but we have to not only address, you know, the violence that precipitates out from those forms of dehumanization, but we also have to get at the root of that prejudice and that violence and that dehumanization. And the only way that we can do that is through community, is through encounter, is through understanding our interdependence and interconnectedness, with one another.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned you've been on this nationwide tour. Who's receiving your book? Who's reading this?
1: I think a lot of our early readers have been friends and fans of Rehumanize International. Um, the reason that I wrote this book, though, um, like, yes, for for our friends, for our fans, but I honestly wrote this book for 16-year-old me. Who was coming into human rights activism, to pro life activism, as an uneducated teenager who didn't know where she belonged in these movements, who didn't know if I belonged in these movements, honestly, because. I had been told that the pro-life world was such a conservative and Christian environment, that it was homophobic and things like that. And so learning about the existence of inclusive organizations like Feminists for Life and Plague and Secular Pro-Life, et cetera, had been such a, a boon to me. And so this book really lays out like what is the consistent life of like what's the movement around it what are the issues that are involved how do I learn about those issues how do I learn how to talk about those issues you know, it really is aimed at new activists or even old activists who you know just want a quick reference guide to be able to come back to again and again to be equipped to talk about the issues within the consistent life ethic, but also just, you know, to continue to provoke conversation because at the end of every chapter is a set of discussion questions and suggested further reading. So this book really is built for this context of existing in community and reading together. So there have already been several uh, school groups that I know of, like this is like the next book on their uh, book club list, where they will read it together and you know just actually go through the discussion questions as a group. Um, So I'm hoping that it will be a great jumping off point, that it will provoke some just excellent and rehumanizing conversations. Because one of the things that I say near the end of the book is that it's important to have these uh, spicy conversations (laughs) with people who agree as well as those who disagree because fundamentally that's how we change hearts and minds is by existing in those uncomfortable spaces with people who disagree with us and being willing to just continually show up and demonstrate that we care. So I, you know, I'm excited to see what will come from it and I'm hopeful that it can help lead the next generation of, consistent life ethic activists to make big changes where they are.
0: Yeah. Well what's next for you, Amy Murphy?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, I still have something like 20 stops left on my book tour. (laughs)
0: Okay.
1: Um so uh if anyone is interested in learning more and seeing where I'll be stopping by, you can check out my author website, uh consistently Amy.com slash events. And my name's spelled A-I-M-E-E. And then our webpage at Rehumanize International, it's rehumanizeintl.org slash book-tour-2022. Both of those pages have the events up for where I'll be headed in the coming months. Um, But for the time being, I know that this effort to share the consistent life ethic on a local level across the country you know, I think it has it has the power to change the world if if we'll let ourselves be moved by it.
0: Well, Amy Murphy, thank you so much for sharing your story and for sharing the invitation and the challenge to to embrace a consistent life ethic.
1: My pleasure, Ken. Thank you so much for having me.
0: You to Amy Murphy. Find links to her book tour and to the organization Rehumanize International in the show notes. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please review the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is, I Don't Know, by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions.